I want to begin with a story, a true story. Uh, maybe some of you have heard it. Hopefully it will prepare us to hear a sobering truth that shouts at us from every page of the Bible, but a truth we faithfully ignore. Several years ago, a man sat in the busy metro station in Washington, D.C., and began to play his violin. Over a span of 45 minutes, he played six Bach compositions, and an estimated thousand people walked by during that period of time. Three minutes elapsed before a man stopped to listen briefly. A few minutes later, a woman dropped a dollar in the till and hurried on. During those 45 minutes, only six people stopped briefly to listen. Only some children were fascinated, but their mothers hurried them on. At the end of that concert, about 20 people had given $32. No one knew this was Joshua Bell, one of the world's greatest musicians, playing one of the most complicated violin pieces ever written and playing on a violin worth three and a half million dollars. Two nights before, he had played in Boston at a sold-out audience. The tickets averaged a hundred dollars. A thousand people walked by. Did none of them, except a few children, sense the sheer beauty, the sheer genius of a man who could recapture for a brief moment in time the spirit of Johann Sebastian Bach? Could we? I'll get to the Gospel's warning about deafness shortly, but first I want to ask, why do you think those people hurried by? Maybe they had no taste for classical music. But if Willie Nelson had been there with a red bandana around his head strumming his guitar, they would probably have stopped. Or maybe it's just too much to expect people to stop when they're in a hurry. We're all in a hurry to get somewhere, God knows where. Maybe it's to Okies up here on the other street. Besides, a busy metro station is hardly the appropriate context for listening to beautiful music. I want you to keep that term, appropriate context, in mind, because I'll get back to that when we get to our New Testament texts. Another excuse, people have different gifts. Some people have an ear for music and for poetry. Some have eyes for sculpture. Some can appreciate a deft putt on the 18th green at Augusta. But other people don't have the gifts to appreciate that sort of thing. But let's move this question to a higher level. What about spiritual gifts, the gifts of the eyes and ears of the soul that can sense 
the presence of God in the pure goodness of magnificent human beings who make us strangely aware of a realm beyond our grasp. Is this gift of spiritual awareness given to some and not to others? Or is this gift, this hunger for God given to everyone? We've all known people who claim that they don't have the gift to appreciate religion. Yet every religion the world has ever known has taught that God has given to all people this divine itch, this emptiness that hungers for God. So what about people who claim they, that God passed them by when he doled out that gift? I say it's pure baloney. What they've done is wasted that priceless gift, servicing the great gods of this world, the great God, knowledge and wisdom and power and wealth, and that cheapest of all great God, bodily pleasure and entertainment. Have we wasted the gift God gave us? I said a few moments ago that I would come back to this idea of appropriate context for hearing God or for hearing anything of importance for that matter. So now it's time to turn to these few scriptural texts I've chosen. The disciples had been with Jesus for some time now, and then I'm sure in frustration he said to them, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he spoke these words at Capernaum, Matthew's hometown. Then Jesus began to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, It shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And may God write his word upon our hearts. Preparing for this sermon, I decided to do a little research. I wanted to uh, learn more about this biblical theme of the deafness and blindness of the soul and about God's persistent search for us when we almost never respond. And lo and behold, the more I looked, the more I found this sobering theme shouting at me from every page. It's not because we're unable to respond. That excuse is too easy. No, it's our refusal to hear and to see, all the while thinking that we good Christians already know everything about God and about ourselves, we need to know. It all started there in the first verses of Genesis. God speak, speech. God spoke. And primeval chaos heard. And creation was begun. 
odd, isn't it? Or maybe the proper word is tragic. That inert chaos heard, while this creature that we are, this creature God meant to be his masterpiece, his loving and obedient companion who would serve him on earth, stops its ears and closes its eyes. Adam, who represents all of us, is there in the garden with his beloved Eve. Uh, trying to hide from God, trying like the proud fools we all are to cover our nakedness, both spiritual and and, and physical, with, with fig leaves. And from that moment on, century after bloody century, we pitiful creatures meant to be royal sons and daughters of God and his kingdom keep hiding from him, keep saying a defiant no thank you. God would send his servants, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets, and they were rejected and persecuted. And then at last came that one who was flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, who would listen and see and obey our Father for our benefit. It was said of him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And for our ultimate and most defiant, no thank you, we stretched him out on a brutal Roman cross, hoping that we would forever get rid of that disturbing presence. And yet this God, whom we seldom hear or see, was never closer to humankind than on that bloody fly-infested hill. Tell me about the proper context in which we are supposed to hear and see God. Well, there it is. Shameful story of our response to God, refusing to hear with the ears of the soul, refusing to see with the eyes of the soul, both of which are God's gifts to us. Poor God. He wants to give us himself and everything else as it is meant to be, and we want none of it. Having ears we hear not, having eyes we see not deliberately. Let's let's pursue a bit more this idea of the appropriate context for seeing and hearing God. We excused all those people in Washington because obviously a metro station is not an appropriate place to stop and listen to magnificent music. Can we use the same excuse when Jesus appears? As if people would have known who he was if he had taught and healed in the proper, sacred, religious context? Should he have taken up a church vocation, nailed his ordination certificate on the wall of his study, uh, draped his shoulders with a black robe, and stood in a high pulpit with an open Bible? Don't kid yourself. Jesus was seldom in sacred places where you'd expect God to show up. Read the Gospels 
And you'll discover that every time he went into the synagogue to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, he excited the hatred of those God-fearing people who listened. And as far as we know, the one time he visited the high temple in Jerusalem as an adult, it was disastrous, not only for the temple authorities, but for himself. After that bruising encounter, he was taken out to that bleak hill called Calvary. That bleak hill is hardly the place where any self-respecting, God-fearing person would expect God to show up. Sacred context. Jesus discovered, as did all the prophets before him, that the synagogue, the temple, the church, call it what you will, is the one place where God's bracing invitation is least heard, the one place where we good men and women meant to be God's nobility in his kingdom do our dead-level religious best to hide from him. As someone said very wisely, the worst thing that keeps us from knowing more about God is what we've just learned about him as if we've got it all in a box. Am I being fair? Uh, Listen, I know what it's like. The soul-dulling pall that stifles the spirit when we enter church doors and the sense of mystery has vanished, it's also cut and dried. How many hundreds of sermons have I preached over a lifetime? not to mention the ones I've heard. You show up on Sunday and it's the same old words you've heard since you were a child, most of them very good words, especially mine. (laughs) Same old music, beautiful music, the same old creed, which we hardly comprehend, and if we did, we would be greatly disturbed by it. The same old prayer, we never really comprehend our Father who art in heaven, blah, blah, blah. We can recite it in our sleep. I don't come expecting anything new, anything that will challenge my pious complacency, anything that will rip open the pall that hides the sacred mystery and can send my soul upward for one clear sound of his voice that will make life not just bearable, but bursting with unconquerable hope. Have you noticed that increasing people sense the presence of God in the blank, hollow eyes of starving children, in the pitiful faces of the homeless, in the suffering of the oppressed, in the moaning of those who are tortured, more than they seem to find his presence in churches. Uh, But for all the church's failings, would they have known to look for God in the suffering of his creatures if it had not been for the church's proclamation of the gospel? And have you also noticed that too many church types fail to see any challenge to their political ideology that automatically rejects the use of tax money to feed or house the poor in spite of our Savior's clear warning 
Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Has the church failed? But, you know, maybe the problem is not so much the church, though she bears plenty of blame, but with you and me. We don't have eyes that want to see or ears that want to see. We're quite content with our emasculated faith as we slide that slippery slope all the way to hell. And yet, where are we poor sinners who yearn for God supposed to go if not to church? where we join with others in confessing our sins, singing our God's praises, sharing the cup of communion, and hearing the word of God that can still bring forth life from the chaos we're constantly making of our lives. For all her failings, she is still, by God's incomparable grace, that sacred place, that holy context, where he comes forever knocking at our hearts. Could it happen? Could it happen in this sacred place, a sudden rending of that soul-smothering pall we so often pull over our minds and hearts when we settle down here in our comfortable pew? Maybe it happened here, and you knew it. God bless you. Knew it deep down where the heart knows things the mind can never comprehend. That time you came and sat back in the corner so no one would notice. A little bit ashamed because you had just quickly capped the purchase of a poor farmer's land who was desperate for money to pay his wife's cancer bills. You knew it was wrong. It was all legal, just as Jesus' crucifixion was legal. But you knew that it was wrong to take advantage of a man's helplessness and desperation. And then midway through the sermon, you heard a clear word of forgiveness that you knew was spoken to you alone. And you vowed from that moment on that you would never take advantage of anyone even to your own hurt, and you kept that vow. Or you, was it that morning you stood with your wife when your beautiful daughter was baptized, and you suddenly knew that your heart was so brimful of gratitude that only God is big enough to receive it? You knew somehow that somewhere in heaven, because of your sheer gratitude, angels were moved to sing. Or maybe, maybe it was that time you had gotten to the end of your rope and you didn't think you could possibly go on. Life was miserable and you heard the preacher's reading of Jesus' words, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Maybe no one else heard, but you knew. That word was for you alone, and you left with a song in your heart, knowing that you could encounter anything that life might throw at you. Yes, for the three of you, whoever you are, you never doubted that once, once, you met God in this sacred place.
For the rest of us, maybe something has happened here, some momentary sparkling insight without knowing it was God who'd kissed our souls. If so, we can only wait and hope and pray that his persistent searching for us is not in vain and that in his time and in his way, he will unstop our ears and open our eyes. Be assured that when it happens, everything will be different and you'll yearn for the next clear whisper of his dreadful love. And once that yearning is awakened, it is only a matter of time because nothing else can ever satisfy you again. Well, I can't fold up my notes and walk away without this one word of warning and of promise. I sometimes fear that if we do not hear God now, we will not hear him later. But one more thing is even more certain. God will never stop knocking at the door of your heart, not even in death. And so every time I have this frightening, blessed task of standing in a pulpit, it is always with the hope and prayer that the pall we always pull over us will be torn asunder. And some of us, maybe even I, the preacher, will get a glimpse of that glorious mystery that fills us with such hope and joy that only eternity is large enough to fulfill it. Amen, and may God bless this witness to his love.